Good morning. My name is Michael McCusker. One of the world's most remarkable human beings in all its history, Mohandas K. Gandhi, was assassinated 75 years ago on January 30th, 1948. He was universally known as Mahatma, which means the great soul, a nearly universal recognition for his intrinsic integrity and vow of poverty, as it was also for his central role in the liberation of India from two centuries of British colonial misrule over the subcontinent's many hundred millions of disparate inhabitants. His development of nonviolent protest as the basic political method of revolutionary resistance to imperial power not only made him world famous, but also the universal philosophical guru of civil rights and freedom movements all over planet Gaia. He was also imprisoned for many years upon many occasions. His most famous weapon against tyranny, aside from nonviolent action, was fasting nearly unto death, in jail or out. Not only the acclaimed leader of the independence of India from Britain, he also led campaigns for ending poverty and hunger, the liberation of women, the relative cessation of India's caste system, and so-called untouchability. And in particular, he espoused and personally practiced mass civil disobedience, famously reactivated by Martin Luther King and the black American civil rights movements of the 1960s. Gandhi forsake wealth and lived most of his life simply, making his own clothes, most recognizably a loincloth, eating a strictly vegetarian diet and living in a village ashram. He was influenced by his studies of the Bhagavad Gita, the Christian Bible, the writings of Thoreau, Ruskin, and Tolstoy, and by the rudiments of British law, which in his earlier life qualified him as an attorney, the underpinnings of his first resistance against British colonialism in South Africa. The British writer Somerset Maugham might have been writing about Gandhi when he described an aesthetic main character in one of his novels as a person who, quote, has found what every one of us wants and few of us gets. Goodness is, after all, the greatest force in the world, and he's got it, unquote. A famous cartoon by the late Bill Malden who died 20 years ago in January 2003, depicted Gandhi walking through clouds with MLK, who had been assassinated 20 years after the Mahatma in 1968. The odd thing about assassins, Dr. King, Gandhi says in the cartoon, is that they think they've killed you. George Orwell, also known as Eric Blair, who was generally critical of Gandhi, wrote following his assassination by a disgruntled religious fanatic that, compared with the other leading political figures of our time, how clean a smell he has managed to leave behind. Quote, 
Orwell, wrote more in a post-mortem essay about Gandhi two years before his own death in 1950, which is what I am going to read from now. Uh, a bit annotated. Reflections on Gandhi by George Orwell. Saints should always be judged guilty until they are proved innocent, but the tests that have to be applied to them are not, of course, the same in all cases. In Gandhi's case, the questions one feels inclined to ask are, to what extent was Gandhi moved by vanity, by the consciousness of himself as a humble, naked old man, sitting on a praying mat and shaking empires by sheer spiritual power? And to what extent did he compromise his own principles by entering into politics, which, of their nature, are inseparable from coercion and fraud. To give a definite answer, one would have to study Gandhi's acts and writings in immense detail, for his whole life was a sort of pilgrimage in which every act was significant. But this partial autobiography, which ends in the 1920s, is strong evidence in his favor all the more because it covers what he would have called the unregenerate part of his life and reminds one that inside the saint or near saint, there was a very shrewd, able person who could, if he had chosen, have been a brilliant success as a lawyer, an administrator, or perhaps even a businessman. British officials who spoke of him with a mixture of amusement and disapproval also genuinely liked and admired him after a fashion. Nobody ever suggested that he was corrupt or ambitious in any vulgar way, or that anything he did was actuated by fear or malice. In judging a man like Gandhi, one seems instinctively to apply high standards so that some of his virtues have passed almost unnoticed. For instance, it is clear even from the autobiography that his natural physical courage was quite outstanding. The manner of his death was a later illustration of this. For a public man who attached any value to his own skin would have been more adequately guarded. Again, he seems to have been quite free from that maniacal suspiciousness which, as E.M. Forster rightly says in a passage to India, is the besetting Indian vice, as hypocrisy is the British vice. Although no doubt he was shrewd, even in detecting dishonesty, he seems, wherever possible, to have believed that other people were acting in good faith and had a better nature through which they could be approached. And though he came of a poor middle-class family, started life rather unfavorably, and was probably of unimpressive physical appearance. He was not afflicted by envy or by the feeling of inferiority. Color feeling, when he first met it in its worst form in South Africa, seems rather to have astonished him. Even when he was fighting what was in effect a color war, he did not think of people in terms of race or status. The governor of a province, 
a cotton millionaire, a half-starved Davidian coolie, a British private soldier, were all equally human beings to be approached in much the same way. It is noticeable that even in the worst possible circumstances, as in South Africa, when he was making himself unpopular as the champion of the Indian community, he did not lack European friends. Almost from childhood onwards, he had a deep earnestness, an attitude ethical rather than religious, but until he was about 30, no very definite sense of direction. His first entry into anything describable as public life was made by way of vegetarianism. Underneath his less ordinary qualities, one feels all the time the solid middle-class businessmen who were his ancestors. One feels that even after he had abandoned personal ambition, he must have been a resourceful, energetic lawyer and a hard-headed political organizer, careful in keeping down expenses, an adroit handler of committees, and an indefatigable chaser of subscriptions. His character was an extraordinarily mixed one, but there was almost nothing in it that you can put your finger on and call bad. And I believe that even Gandhi's worst enemies would admit that he was an interesting and unusual man who enriched the world simply by being alive. Whether he was also a lovable man and whether his teachings can have much value for those who do not accept the religious beliefs on which they are founded, I have never felt fully certain. Of late years, it has been the fashion to talk about Gandhi as though he were not only sympathetic to the Western left-wing movement, but were even intricately part of it. Anarchists and pacifists, in particular, have claimed him for their own, noticing only that he was opposed to centralism and state violence and ignoring the otherworldly anti-humanist tendency of his doctrines. But one should, I think, realize that Gandhi's teachings cannot be squared with the belief that man is the measure of all things and that our job is to make life worth living on this earth, which is the only earth we have. They make sense only on the assumption that God exists and that the world of solid objects is an illusion to be escaped from. It is worth considering the disciplines which Gandhi imposed on himself and which, though he might not insist on every one of his followers observing every detail, he considered indispensable if one wanted to serve either God or humanity. Gandhi's pacifism can be separated to some extent from his other teachings. Its motive was religious, but he claimed also for it that it was a definite technique, a method capable of producing desired political results. Gandhi's attitude was not that of most Western pacifists. Satyagraha, first evolved in South Africa, was a sort of nonviolent warfare a way of defeating the enemy without hurting him and without feeling or arousing hatred. It entailed such things as civil disobedience, strikes, laying down in front of railway trains, 
enduring police charges without running away and without hitting back and the like. Gandhi objected to passive resistance as a translation of Satyagraha. In Gujarati, it seems the word means firmness in the truth. In his early days, Gandhi served as a stretcher bearer on the British side in the Boer War, and he was prepared to do the same again in the war of 1914-1918. Even after he had completely abjured violence, he was honest enough to see that in war it is usually necessary to take sides. He did not, indeed, since his whole political life centered round a struggle for national independence, he could not take the sterile and dishonest line of pretending that in every war both sides are exactly the same and it makes no difference who wins. There is reason to think that Gandhi, who after all was born in 1869, did not understand the nature of totalitarianism and saw everything in terms of his own struggle against the British government. The important point here is not so much that the British treated him forbearingly as that he was always able to command publicity. As can be seen from the phrases quoted above, he believed in arousing the world, which is only possible if the world gets a chance to hear what you are doing. It is difficult to see how Gandhi's methods could be applied in a country where opponents of the regime disappear in the middle of the night and are never heard of again. Without a free press and the right of assembly, it is impossible not merely to appeal to outside opinion, but to bring a mass movement into being or even to make your intentions known to your adversary. Is there a Gandhi in Russia at this moment? And if there is, what is he accomplishing? The Russian masses could only practice civil disobedience if the same idea happened to occur to all of them simultaneously, and even then, to judge by the history of the Ukraine famine, it would make no difference. But let it be granted that nonviolent resistance can be effective against one's own government or against an occupying power. Even so, how does one put it into practice internationally? Gandhi's various conflicting statements on the late war, World War II, seems to show that he felt the difficulty of this. Applied to foreign politics, pacifism either stops being pacifist or becomes appeasement. Moreover, the assumption which served Gandhi so well in dealing with individuals that all human beings are more or less approachable and will respond to a generous gesture needs to be seriously questioned. It is not necessarily true, for example, when you are dealing with lunatics. Then the question becomes, who is sane? Was Hitler sane? And is it not possible for one whole culture to be insane by the standards of another? And so far as one can gauge the feelings of whole nations, is there any apparent connection between a generous deed and a friendly response. Is gratitude a factor in international politics? 
these and kindred questions need discussion and need it urgently in the few years left to us before somebody presses the button and the rockets begin to fly. It seems doubtful whether civilization can stand another major war, and it is at least thinkable that the way out lies through nonviolence. It is Gandhi's virtue that he would have been ready to give honest consideration to the kind of question that I have raised above. And indeed, he probably did discuss most of these questions somewhere or other in his innumerable newspaper articles. One feels of him that there was much that he did not understand, but not that there was anything that he was frightened of saying or thinking. I have never been able to feel much liking for Gandhi, but I do not feel sure that as a political thinker he was wrong in the main, nor do I believe that his life was a failure. It is curious that when he was assassinated, many of his warmest admirers exclaimed sorrowfully that he had lived just long enough to see his life work in ruins because India was engaged in a civil war which had always been foreseen as one of the byproducts of the transfer of power. But it was not in trying to smooth down into Muslim rivalry that Gandhi had spent his life. His main political objective, the peaceful ending of British rule, had after all been attained. As usual, the relevant facts cut across one another. On the one hand, the British did get out of India without fighting, an event which very few observers indeed would have predicted until about a year before it happened. On the other hand, this was done by a labor government, and it is certain that a conservative government, especially a government headed by Winston Churchill, would have acted differently. But if, by 1945, there had grown up in Britain a large body of opinion sympathetic to Indian independence, how far was this due to Gandhi's personal influence? And if, as may happen, India and Britain finally settle down into a decent and friendly relationship, will this be partly because Gandhi, by keeping up his struggle obstinately and without hatred, disinfected the political air? That one even thinks of asking such questions indicates his stature. One may feel, as I do, a sort of aesthetic distaste for Gandhi. One may reject the claims of sainthood made on his behalf. He never made any such claim himself, by the way. One may also reject sainthood as an ideal and therefore feel that Gandhi's basic aims were anti-human and reactionary, but regarded simply as a politician and compared with the other leading political figures of our time, how clean a smell he has managed to leave behind. And that was by George Orwell, Reflections on Gandhi. And now, a poem by a very famous Indian poet, Rabindranath Tagore, if indeed I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who 
won the 1913 Nobel Prize in Literature. Let my country awake. And this elegant, timely, relevant poem was composed in 1910, according to the great Dr. Robert Brake, who sent it to me. Let my country awake, where the mind is without fear and the head is held high, where knowledge is free, where the world has not been broken up into fragments by narrow domestic walls, where words come out from the depths of truth, where tireless striving stretches its arms toward perfection, where the clear stream of reason has not lost its way into the dreary desert sand of dead habit, where the mind is led forward by thee into ever-widening thought and action. Into that heaven of freedom, my father, let my country awake. And that was by Rabindranath Tagore, a poem about his country, India. And by Gerald A. Forsyth, who was raised in the southeast of Asia by his missionary parents, the world savers. Some trample hope with apathy in pursuit of their own greed. Few really see what's happening, confusing their wants with need. But woe under the world saver, trying to raise consciousness levels. For you, no opposition waver from those whose greed names you all devils, summing your life up as sorrow, wondering whose plan you will borrow, knowing you will never achieve, yet granting yourself no reprieve, wishing every human could see that which you have always known to be, watching with absolute horror while those pursue the suicidal path they chose. Good luck with the pain. Just pray that you will die before your poor brain finds the answers to why. Express it in anger. Release it in rage. Poor little world saver. They never will change. And that was The World Savers by Gerald A. Forsyth. Once upon a time of Astoria and played in Shanghai in Astoria for a couple of summers. I don't know what's happened to him. I hope he's well. He was about six foot seven or eight, a very, very tall man. This is Michael McCusker. Dylan Hauser Schalk is program engineer. An apparently long forgotten comment is being hurled toward Earth from the sun for its first appearance in 50,000 years. Simply called the Green Comet, officially noted as Comet 2022E3ZTF, in parentheses, its last appearance was just about when humanity's Stone Age was just beginning. February 1st or 2nd is when the comet is estimated to make its closest pass on Earth. Astronomers first glimpse it last March. Apparently, 
the comet will be barely visible, quote-unquote, to the naked eye, not at all as bright as Comet Hayukutaki in 1996, which appeared as a long celestial streak every night, as though it were the sky's mustache for nearly a month and more. And now we begin the year of the Waskily Wabbit, as a former seaside child named Mel Blank, a man of 10,000 voices, used to say. <laughs> 